Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Megan Gibson, Senior Editor International of the New Statesman in London. I'm Emily Tampkin, U.S. Editor in Washington, D.C. It's Thursday, the 9th of December. You're listening to World Review from the New Statesman, a twice-weekly international news podcast. Every Thursday, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs. And every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. This week, we look at the attack on abortion rights in America. A critical Supreme Court case protecting the right to an abortion could soon be overturned. And with Russian troops building on Ukraine's border, U.S. President Joe Biden spoke with Russian President Vladimir Putin. Hello. Good to see you again. Last time I saw, we didn't get to see one another at the G20. I hope next time we meet, we do it in person. What did they discuss? And what does this mean for Ukraine? Thank you for joining us. Let's begin. All right, Megan, it's just you and me this week, um, and we have a lot to, to get through, so let's, let's get right into it. A, a major story here in the United States and really uh, around the world um, this week is abortion. Last week, the U.S. Supreme Court heard oral arguments in the case of Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization, which is basically a challenge to this ban that the state of Mississippi passed against abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy. If this case goes the way that oral arguments suggested that it would go, it could not only keep this law in place, but also overturn Roe versus Wade, which is the case from almost 50 years ago that protects the right to an abortion. Some of the arguments that justices made were, so you had Amy Coney Barrett, who's the newest justice on the bench. She was put on with just days to go before the 2020 election after Ruth Bader Ginsburg died. She made the argument a couple of times that because every state has safe haven laws, which means you can just put your baby up for adoption, that that solves the problem that is abortion, which is just so intentionally blind to the ways in which just the very fact of being pregnant affects a person's life. Meanwhile, you had Brett Kavanaugh, the second most recent justice who was confirmed after telling um, Republican Senator Susan Collins, well, I think that Roe versus Wade is settled law. You had him say, and I'm paraphrasing, but basically he said that you need to choose between the, the fetus and the woman. 
and was sort of clear from context that he meant you should side with the fetus. Chief Justice Roberts seemed to be suggesting that there could be some way that they say that abortion is acceptable or protected up to 15 weeks. So move the viability point back from where it is with Roe. But the other conservative justices did not seem to be willing to play ball. We won't know until next June or July. But I think for people in the United States who care about the right to have an abortion, it was a disturbing day because the reality is that Yes, there are things called medical abortions, like abortion pills, which people are, are speaking of. But there are also efforts made in, in, you know, in Texas to make that legal. And while there are some states in which abortion will remain legal, um, that means that it's a question of who either lives in those states or who has access to go to those states, right? So this will disproportionately hurt more disadvantaged Americans. The other thing is that there is a law, a, a bill, excuse me, that has passed the House that would codify the right to an abortion, but it's stalled in the Senate where unless the Democrats abolish the filibuster, which they're not going to do, they will just languish, right? Or just or just stay there and pass. But Megan, when you, when you heard this news from last week, what did you make of it? I mean, one thing I think we need to kind of clarify, because if you are not in the U.S. and you've kind of been dipping in and out over the years and following and knowing that, you know, abortion is a very divisive topic in the U.S., Republicans in different states have really been, you know, chipping away at women's rights to abortions within the state. I think one of the things is important to clarify why this certain case is different from what happened in Texas earlier this year and what happened has happened over the course of a few years and why this case is actually putting Roe v. Wade at risk when those other ones didn't. That's a great point. And it's for two reasons, because you're right that this has been chipped at away slowly over time um, and that in many states, it's already extremely difficult, extremely difficult to get an abortion. But Roe v. Wade is the, the case that at a national level, protected the right to an abortion. The reason why they can overturn it now is that they have six conservative justices on the bench, which has also been a long time coming, right? This was a very intentional project carried out over time to get conservative justices on the bench. And it worked. I also think it's important to note that this took people who are anti-abortion five decades to carry out, right? It took five decades between Roe versus Wade and likely overturning Roe versus Wade. Yeah. So to go from the right to an abortion being protected under the national law to case law to, to not that, right? There is no reason in my mind to think that it will not take at least five decades for this to be reversed mm-hmm. if it is indeed going to be settled by the courts. Like this is going to change this facet of American life for for a long time. Because of course, US Supreme Court justices are appointed for life. So that's right. They are when once they're appointed, they're there for right. decades. Um, Another twist here is that basically there's one more year in which if a Supreme Court justice retires, Biden can get a a, a more liberal justice on the bench. Mm -hmm. Because right now, Democrats have the House and Senate, and they need the Senate to confirm the justices. They may well lose the Senate in 2022, because it's the midterms, the party who has the White House often loses Mm -hmm. at least one House of Congress. Um, Stephen Breyer, who is 83 years old, has not announced his intention to retire. And it's sort of very interesting you know, we just saw a justice pass away when the when Republicans controlled the White House and the Senate, and we saw what happened. 
it's that Amy Coney Barrett was put on the bench with days to go before the 2020 election. Very rapidly. Very rapidly. Very rapidly. Right. And we also saw that when Antonin Scalia, who was a conservative justice, died with like nine months to go before the end of Obama's term, a Republican-controlled Senate refused to confirm Merrick Garland, the moderate liberal justice whom Obama had put forward. So if you are a Democrat and you want to put a more liberal-minded justice on the court, you basically have to control the White House and the Senate, which right now Democrats do. But mm-hmm. Stephen Breyer is not, it, it does not appear to be retiring anytime soon. How intense is the pressure on him to retire? You know, it's interesting. I think for more progressive types, it's like, come on, you have to step down. But there's also this, like, Washington is in many ways really a town of decorum and tradition and norms for the sake of norms. And I I think people do, there is understanding in some corners that, well, this is a lifetime appointment and it is his right to stay on it, stay on that bench for the rest of his life. But I did want to zoom out a little bit because I don't want listeners to to walk away from this episode thinking, well, this is a unique issue in the United States because it's not. No, it's definitely not a unique issue in the United States. I mean, we look at what's going on in Poland and there's very an active activist movement, you know, trying to fight Poland's really restrictive abortion laws where, although I will say that they do allow abortions for in the case of rape or incest, which from what I gather, some US states would would not allow such exemptions. Um, But yeah, there's a really concerted backlash to those laws. We've seen, you know, mass, mass protests and and a really, you know, a galvanized population. But elsewhere, places that had quite restrictive abortion laws, I'm thinking Ireland, Argentina, in the last few years, those have been overturned. And other countries have actually loosened their restrictions and made it much easier for women to get abortions. You know, that Mexico has done that. Thailand has done that. Um, New Zealand. So the U.S. is really kind of not only, you know, moving backwards in itself, it's kind of going against the grain of where the rest of the world, especially the developed world, is seeming to go. And I just... <sighs> Uh, just to be clear, I want to say, even if Roe v. Wade is overturned, it's not like abortion is outlawed across the country. It still comes down to what states say. That's but right. how many That's states exactly right. actually are facing a complete ban on abortion if Roe v. Wade is overturned? I mean, it, it could be as many as 26 states, which is it's over half the country. And I think, you know, there was, I believe it was Kavanaugh who made the argument that, well, we would just be referring back to have it be, you know, to just be up to the states. The issue with this, again, is that that basically means that if you live in certain places or have the means to get to those places, you'll still have an abortion or you will still be able to have an abortion. And if you don't, you won't. And it's already the case that it is more dangerous to be a pregnant person, particularly if you are a person of color in certain states. Um, And I'm glad you mentioned Poland because there was a case recently in Poland in which a woman was not given an abortion, even though the fetus did not appear to be viable, and she and she died. Like, yes, it's a divisive political issue, but it's also a very real health issue for for millions yeah. of people. And I should just make the final point. I know it's been said a lot, but it's, I just can't it can't be overstated that banning abortion doesn't lower the amount of abortions. It just raises the number of women who can't get safe abortions and end up dying or suffering very very significant health problems because of that. So. Wealthy women, you know, will still find ways to keep getting abortions. This is going to really impact people of lower socioeconomic demographics. We will continue to follow the story both in the United States and also around the world. 
Switching gears dramatically now. We're going to see what Biden has been up to with regards to Putin, or maybe more accurately, what Putin has been up to regarding Ukraine. So in recent weeks, we've seen Putin amass up to, I mean, some reports say 175,000 troops along Russia's border with Ukraine. The you know fear of war is dramatically risen in capitals across Europe. Brussels is stressed. Uh, obviously, Washington is stressed because on Tuesday, the 7th of December, Putin and uh, Joe Biden had a two-hour video summit to discuss what is going to happen with Ukraine. And this is quite, quite an interesting kind of, I don't want to say they're in kind of a situation where neither side is going to possibly get what they really want out of this. This is how the call went from the U.S.'s perspective. He told President Putin directly that if Russia further invades Ukraine, the United States and our European allies would respond with strong economic measures. We would provide additional defensive materiel to the Ukrainians above and beyond that which we are already providing. And we would fortify our NATO allies on the eastern flank with additional capabilities in response to such an escalation. He also told President Putin there's another option, de-escalation and diplomacy. So that was National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan sort of recapping what Putin and Biden discussed. And Megan, I think I think you're you're right to say that it is I mean it is a bit of a of, of a staring contest, mm-hmm. right? Um I think this call was intended to lower the temperature, but there are certain truths that we can't really get around, even if even if Russia does not further invade Ukraine. Like the United States would probably like to focus on things that are not Russia, and Russia does not want the United States to forget about it. Um, no, a real a real don't you forget about me. Russia wants to be on the world stage that that they exactly. want to signal that they have the power to do this, that they have the military capability to invade Ukraine, and they want the U.S. to know that. I also think it's it's worth noting that um, that the reality is that although you know yes um, the U.S. can bolster support for NATO in countries at the easternmost edge of NATO. And yes, the United States can continue to send military aid to Ukraine. And yes, the United States can, you know, Biden can get on the phone with Putin. All of that is true. The other part of this is that Putin knows, and I'm, I believe you, you know, many in Ukraine know that Ukraine matters more to Russia than it does to the United States. It is also right next to Russia and it is not right next to the United States. So there's only so much that the United States can really, can really accomplish here. Um, and everybody involved knows that. So, you know, and, and Biden said, or Sullivan said, recapping the call that, well, there, there will be steps that the United States was not willing to take in 2014, that it is willing to take now. And it's sort of like, well, it can put on stricter sanctions. It can give more aid to military aid to Ukraine. It can try to get, you know, have other NATO partners and to have members of the EU also support Ukraine. The reality is that there's only so much that the United States can do here. But Joe Biden does not want to say that, of course, because right, of course, he can't the say US that. is very invested yes. for the last almost decade in, in Ukraine's, you know, safety. And there's no way that Biden can really walk back from that either. So 
Putin and Putin knows that Putin has right. um, a lot of leverage in this case, and some make the argument that this amassing of troops is only to give him leverage. He's not really planning on following through with any sort of invasion because you know conditions aren't really very favorable as they were in 2014 when he annexed Crimea. But that said, I mean, just we had in our New Statesman cover story uh, a couple of weeks ago, which we can link to. Putin very much favors chaos and instability. And sometimes that backfires on him. And sometimes things don't go as, you know, maybe he he had planned. So while a lot of people say, you know, an invasion isn't likely, it's definitely possible. Two other sort of interesting things to pull out. So the United States has had sanctions on Russia's um, various Russian sectors, including its defense sector. Yeah. Which means that if you, you know, if, if you're doing business with Russia's defense sector, you could be sanctioned by the United States. India, which the United States really wants to partner with more and more closely in order to counter China, is buying S-400, so military equipment. Well, first of all, like 60% of their military equipment still comes from Russia. They're also buying this new system, the S-400 system from Russia. It looks like the United States will waive, will issue a waiver so that they are not sanctioned, but Putin was in Delhi this week, which I find really interesting, sort of making a big show of the Indian-Russian relationship, particularly the defense relationship. So that's an interesting wrinkle. Also an interesting wrinkle is that the United States this week, Thursday and Friday, is hosting its Summit for Democracies. I think the Summit for Democracy is, is less about Russia and more about China, to be honest. But it, it, the timing is interesting, right? I agree. I agree. That is, I think it is more about China. But... I mean, it just comes at a very interesting time when everything is going on with Russia. And Russia obviously is not invited to right. the summit on democracies. Well, the, the guest list, though, is really interesting because you have some countries that, that purport to be democratic, but where there's major human rights backsliding. You have some countries that just completely aren't democracies that were invited. Um, you have some countries that are, are you know, middling democracies or, or, or trying to be democracies that were not invited. So that's interesting. The one hears in Washington that there is frustration from those who had to carry out the summit because it took so much time and energy and resources. And is is a summit for democracy really the way that we bolster democracy, right? Like the Biden right. administration this week rolled out this big anti-corruption package. To me, that's that's a more effective way to counter authoritarianism and build up your democracy, right? Like that's tangible. Getting yeah. a bunch of democracies in a room and talking about how your democracy is like, what is that? What does that really accomplish? It's a talking shop. It becomes a talking shop that doesn't really do do much. And also, I think there's a view in Europe that, among some people, that you know, there's this the school of thought that the whole underlying premise of the summit, you know, dividing countries into the democracies that we are want to engage with, and then the undemocratic countries that we should avoid talking to. That's, that doesn't really reflect the reality of how the world works. I mean... Of geopolitics, right. Exactly, exactly. Countries, whether democratic or not, need to engage with one another at some point. So so forming a little club, some argue, is a bit, I mean, silly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I think that's fair. Particularly since... So it would, it would be silly if it were a democracy club. It's even sillier in my view because it's not really a democracy club. It's a club that's calling itself a democracy club and is actually this hodgepodge of countries that the United States is, wants to work with. Yes, exactly. And yeah, there's another school of thought that this is just about the US trying to shore up some of its own geopolitical connections 
and rather than actually doing anything coherent with regards to democracy. Yeah. And again, just to reiterate, I really, I mean, we'll see what happens. And maybe this is going to be the most amazing thing that the United States has ever done. And I will come back at some time and and eat these words. But I, I really think even from a geopolitical perspective, like from a democratic, from any perspective, I do not think that this is the most effective course of action or use of anybody's time. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to the New Statesman on digital, in print, or both for as little as one pound a week at newstatesman.com slash subscribe. That's just $2 a week in America. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow Electoral Dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts. Now, it's time to hear from you with a section that we like to call You Ask Us. This week's question is, how upset is China about the US boycotting the Beijing Winter Olympics? Megan, since you wrote on this this week, and we will drop a link to the article in the show notes, can you can you tell us a bit about, so it's the United States and Australia, right, have decided to diplomatically boycott the Beijing Olympics? Yes. And actually, so since the US announced the boycott on Monday, Australia has followed suit the following day. And now Canada and the UK have also said that they will be joining any diplomatic boycott. Now, there's been talk about you know, the possibility of this kind of boycott for some time, but it wasn't until this week that Biden actually, you know, started the domino effect of it. And Biden, you know, he's wanted to take a stance against the Chinese Communist Party, you know, for for multiple reasons, actually, you know, 
over its aggression towards Taiwan. And specifically, and this is something he specifically flagged in, in his statement, that the boycott is because of the human rights abuses against Uyghurs in China. So once that the US made that decision, other countries started to kind of follow suit. Now, we need to make the distinction here, of course, that this is a diplomatic boycott. It's not a you know, revisiting of the boycott of the Moscow Olympics in 1980. So athletes will definitely still be competing. And that actually will kind of, I think, put some some of these countries in a bit of a tricky point where they'll want to, you know, be supporting their athletes in the world world games, but they 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 won't want it to be seen as, you know, participating in the spectacle of, of the games, if you see what I mean. So the official response from the Chinese foreign ministry after Biden made his announcement was was pretty severe. So on the 7th of December, the Chinese foreign ministry spokesperson said the U.S. has shot itself in the foot. The U.S. should understand the grave consequences of its move. Now, he didn't actually specify what those consequences would entail, but it, it was a pretty strong reaction. Other reactions from officials in China or from Chinese state media have been a bit more, I guess you could say, petty or sneering. So they've they've made the point on, on, on Twitter and elsewhere that politicians can't boycott something that they weren't even invited to. And there was one journalist from the China, China Daily who, who tweeted, you're not invited and not welcome, Mr. Biden. Hope you live long enough to see China boycotting the Los Angeles games in 2028. So it, it really kind of devolved into, into a bit of mudslinging. Mm-hmm. But I will say China, obviously, the Olympics is it matters hugely to them, as it does to many countries. But but hosting it is a very big badge of honor. It really establishes, especially if they can pull out a you know a good showstopper of a at an event, which they did back in the last time they hosted the Olympics. Absolutely, the last time the Summer Games that that was huge, and it was seen as a great you know soft power success for them. You know, it really establishes them as like a world superpower that they they can put on such a show, and you know, lots of countries want that. They want that same thing. That's why the IOC and the Olympics are still so, so powerful, actually. But we'll see what kind of, you know, grave consequences there will be for the US. I think probably Australia will be a bit more nervous. They've, in recent years, you know, suffered their own economic boycotts from China. And that's really, you know, impacted them a lot. So I think they'll be quite worried about that being the other case. The only other thing that I want to note on this is that I think it's really interesting that the IOC continues to, you know, they say that they practice more like a a quiet diplomacy with China. But it's interesting that as different as the world is between 2008 and 2022, it will be, um, the IOC is basically taking the same tone and and same tact with China. Um, And as as most sporting organizations have. Right. So the the one notable exception being the Women's Tennis Association, which is spoken out against and and, and pulled its activities from China after the disappearance of a Chinese tennis star, um, Peng Shui, who spoke about I apologize if I mispronounced that, who spoke out against um, alleged sexual assault from a person who was really the face or one of the faces of these Beijing Mm -hmm. Olympics. So he was he's actually he was a former like bigwig in the within the government. That's right. Aside from the WT, and so like despite that, and despite the the Uyghurs and various other human rights abuses in China, 
not just the IOC, but most sporting organizations have continued to see China as a market and as Mm -hmm. an opportunity where the the main consideration is not human rights abuses. And I, I do, I do wonder, and I'm, I'm saying this from a place of genuine wonder, I wonder how we will look back on the various decisions to deal with China in the 2022 games, 10, 20, 30 years from now. I wonder, that's, it's a wider question, I think, not just for the IOC, although the IOC is quite huge in this, but, you know, also for other international sporting organizations. I mean, we're Absolutely. The, the World Cup will be in Qatar, and there's been lots of questions about human rights violations there. And and increasingly, as more European countries and other Western countries have decided that the actual financial cost of hosting the Olympics isn't worth it, we're seeing a lot more autocratic countries, you know, putting That's their right. hands up to host. So I think these questions will only become more and more pertinent as the years go on. Thank you to all of you who sent in your questions. Listeners, you can send yours in at podcasts at newstatesman.co.uk, or you can just tweet at us. That's all the time we have for today. You can read our international team reporting at newstatesman.com and join us on Monday for an interview with Aurelia Nguyen, Managing Director of the COVAX facility at Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance. And subscribe to our World Review newsletter at newstatesman.com slash world hyphen review. Please like, subscribe, rate us, leave a review, and tell your friends. Our producer has been Mae Robson. Thank you for listening and until next time. 2012. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.